Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Welcome to Westminster Chapel. Thanks for joining us. We're partway through, but very near the beginning stages of our series in the book of Acts that we've been going through. This is the sort of real action-packed journey of the church in the New Testament. And hopefully we're going to see today just how important these early chapters are for not only the story of the Bible, but if we're taking that the Bible is documenting truth, at least, if you're skeptical about Christianity, you can at least Um, hopefully agree. The scholarship is quite clear. This is a very good historical account of the explosion of this movement called Christianity that is still going on and still taking the world at storm 2,000 years after these events. So it's a good historical account, but I think we're going to see it's far more than that as well we're going to see that there is an incredible story here for us to find our place in, not only to read and enjoy, but for us to actually discover where we fit within the great story of God. So let's pray. Let's give ourselves to God himself and experience his joy. Lord, thank you that we have your word so freely available in a language that we understand just even thinking about this book of, or this story of Pentecost, the stories of God had largely only been written in three languages. Now it's hundreds, hundreds and hundreds because of your explosive power and the work of the Holy Spirit through your amazing servants who've given their, often sometimes their lives, to translating this into different people's languages. One day, that once there was no Bible in English, and now there is. So thank you for that. And thank you for, most of all, the presence of your Spirit to illuminate our hearts, open our eyes, unblock our deaf ears where they're a bit bunged up and deaf. And Lord, please help us to, to hear what you're saying to us as a church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to... We're going to be spending a bit of time in Acts chapter 2, which is essentially one sermon, really. It's an event followed by a sermon. And we're going to really be taking our time for quite a number of weeks looking through this event because of how significant it is in the story of Acts. You won't understand the rest, the next 27 chapters or 26, whatever the maths does, You won't understand this story if you don't understand what happened in this chapter, but also I don't think you'll understand what has happened in human history if you don't understand what's going on here. Because let's just go with the basic figures. We have probably a crowd of about 120 people who believed a different version of Judaism to the the Jews at the time, i.e. they had discovered a man called Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah who had been promised long ago. They believed in him and started following him. They were initially known, we'll discover, as people of the way. Even the term Christianity hadn't emerged at that point. A very small group, 
Some would call it a little cult, a religious cult in the midst of Judaism. And now look at the scale of Christianity. Not only how widespread churches are and Christians are across the world, but also how transformed the world has been because of this movement called Christianity. So really, we need to understand what's going on here. And this is the pivot moment. We've gone from the Gospels, the Gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which all finish with similar stories of Jesus dying and then references to him rising again um, from, the, from death. But now we've got the interesting movement and interchange between what I'm going to call the old episode, the previous episode, and the new episode. I don't know if you're really into any TV programs. Did anyone here watch Line of Duty when it was on? All right, not many. There was a TV program called Line of Duty, and that it had the long, there was one storyline throughout the entire thing which was asking the question, who is H? H was the mole within the police force. He was the guy who you needed to find out who it was in order to understand everything. And honestly, anyone who was watching Line of Duty, it was all over social media, this episode was anticipated by everyone. We're going to finally find out who H is. And I'm going to give you a spoiler. It was the most disappointing <laughs> ending you'll ever find. It was blatantly obvious who it was in the, uh, by the end. It was rubbish. This is actually a better version. The long-awaited episode that God's people, the Jews at the time, had been waiting for this turn of the page. You had the old chapter and then the turn of the page into the new. It's the episode that everyone has been waiting for. It is the Apple iPhone software update that everyone has been waiting for because there's bugs in the old one. This is what everyone has been longing to experience. And it's happening here in front of these disciples' eyes. To help us understand possibly how to read such a significant chapter, I wanted to go to one of the most important um, social, uh, um, what would you call it? It's not quite documentary, but it's, it's up there. What would you call Shrek? He references and especially Shrek 2. It happened right away in the opening montage, when Shrek and Fiona are rolling around in... Oh, how's it making noise? Shrek um, was an amazing film. The first one was, I thought, brilliant. But we were all waiting for Shrek 2 to find out really how good it could become. The next film, and often sequels are rubbish, aren't they? But I had faith that it was going to be good. And to be honest, I wasn't disappointed. I thought Shrek 2 was brilliant. And I'm going to show you a clip, and it's not just to applaud Shrek 2. This, I think, teaches us skills for how to read Scripture. I'll show you this. Um, clip. It's quite fast, so hopefully we can keep up with it. It's very quick. You're about to discover 15 movie references seen in Shrek 2, and several happen right away in the opening montage. When Shrek and Fiona are rolling around and kissing on the beach, an aerial lookalike is washed up into Shrek's arms before a jealous Fiona throws her back into the ocean. Seconds later, Shrek accidentally tosses Fiona's ring in the air, and it lands perfectly on her finger, just like Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. Then at the end of the montage, the happy couple are jumped by some pitchfork-wielding village people, and Shrek gets caught in a trap while Fiona uses her kung fu skills to take everyone out, and then they celebrate with the iconic upside-down kiss from Spider-Man 2. 
During the fairy godmother's song, she makes a joke about Disney Cinderella when she gives Fiona a new dress that was made by mice. Then soon after, we see another Disney reference from Beating the Beast, with the singing and dancing furniture. When the king visits the poison apple to hire a hitman to take out Shrek, we see a Captain Hook lookalike playing the piano, and two fighting trees from The Wizard of Oz are arm wrestling. When Puss in Boots first confronts Shrek, Puss carves his initials in the tree just like Zorro. And later on, when Shrek, Donkey, and Puss are trying to escape Fairy Godmother's potion room after stealing one, Puss does a hat grab just like Indiana Jones. And during their escape, they spill a huge potion vat that transforms two workers into Lumiere and Cogsworth. After the Fairy Godmother captures the three heroes and locks them up in prison, their fairy tale friends come to the rescue, and Pinocchio makes a dramatic entrance just like Ethan Hunt from the first Mission Impossible. To break into the castle, the heroes devise a plan to build a giant cookie, and the gingerbread man shouts it's alive just like Dr. Frankenstein. And then in the next shot, the giant's thundering footsteps cause ripples in two cups of coffee, just like the T-Rex's introduction in Jurassic Park. A giant cookie terrorizing a town calls back to films with giant creatures in them like King Kong, Godzilla, and Ghostbusters. And while the heroes are trying to break into the castle to rescue Fiona, the giant's arms are broken and he falls into the castle moat. And as he's sinking, he tells the gingerbread man to be good, which is what E.T. told Elliot before he left on his spaceship at the end of the movie. Click a video for more great content right here on Fun Fact Films. <laughs> That was quick. And if you're not careful in such a film that has so much going on, you'll miss so many of these references to previous stories. Now, why do they do it? I think in Disney's case, or DreamWorks, they're probably doing it to show off how clever they are slightly. But also, the storyline in Shrek and Shrek 2 is essentially all of the fairy tales, all of the stories in popular culture are finding their fulfillment in this story. This is the ultimate fairy tale story. That's the idea. And what we're going to find in Acts chapter 2 is there are hundreds, maybe more, of cross-references and allusions and flashbacks and references to old stories of the Bible, all channeled into this one episode and this event. And if you're not careful, we'll skim over it and we'll miss it. And that's why we're taking a long time over the next few weeks to really focus in on this and try and discover as much as we can. But I would encourage you, go away and read this for yourself and just ask, your, ask yourself the question, where have I heard this before? Where have I heard about flames? Where have I heard about wind? Where have I heard about God's spirit moving? Where have I heard these prophecies? Where have I heard all of these kinds of stories? And we'll pick up on a few of them today, but I'd encourage you to do that for yourselves as well. So let's get into Acts chapter two, which I would call the greatest montage of all time. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This was either the large crowd of 120 disciples or just the apostles at that point, probably the larger crowd. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And the reason for this is this was the festival of Pentecost, which was one of the three biggest festivals in their calendar. And they were all gathering from, as you can see in the image, all around the known world to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival together. So at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered, 
because each one was hearing them speak in his own language or dialect, because these were still Jews, but they all had different dialects from around the world. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them, each, each of us in his own language, native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Now, one commentator suggests that specifically mentioning all of these places is a political reference because it was known at the time that Caesar, i.e., the guy in charge of the Ro Rome, he had supposedly claimed all of these parts of the world. And we're hearing a political statement here that Jesus is going to go on to claim these parts of the world. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. If you go in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, you can read this. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. That kind of language is a bit like when English people would say earth-shattering events. Apocalyptic kind of stuff. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Next week, Guy Miller's going to be back and he will just preach on that verse, as far as I know, unless he's changed his mind. And it will be a call to those who want to trust in Jesus that you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. But let's focus on those words there. Peter says, in the last days. Now, if you go back to Joel chapter 2, that isn't exactly what it said. Peter is drawing on his knowledge of Old Testament forecasts, a bit like weather forecasts, but think of it of what God is going to do in the nations. Forecasts from the prophets, and they spoke about the last days. This is what I was talking about with the previous episode and the next episode. We are at the hinge point pressing play on the next episode in the story of God. And the previous episode was the former days. And now we're in the last days. So Peter is drawing on all of this 
these predictions, these forecasts, and using that phrase, the last days, to refer to this chapter or this episode or this software update to say this is where we are now in the story of God. And I was wondering whether to help us understand the depth of meaning behind a small phrase that we could very quickly glance over, whether we could use my favorite thing is very cheesy puns to help ourselves understand what was behind, what was expected in this next chapter of God's story. So we've got the born-again ultimatum, Jesus Christ and the temple of life, and found in translation rather than lost in translation. Because, so let's work with that first one. Jason Bourne looking intense. My housemate looked identical to him. It was really weird. Um, The old chapter of the story could have been called something like the era of death. The prophets who had been tasked by God to speak to the nation, to try and wake the nation up from its slumber and direct them back to God, used to use very, very poetic imagery to describe the state that the nation was in. And really, we could sort of see this as a way of describing that what was their experience and what would you call the previous episode, an era of death or the valley of dry bones. In Isaiah, Isaiah 26, he says this, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, you who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy. He is describing the nation of Israel at the time specifically the southern tribes, but really the whole region, and saying, you're currently dead, your bodies are in the dust, but there will be a day when you rise and when you sing for joy. For, the Jew of, for your Jew is a Jew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. This was an era of death. It's maybe put even more starkly, famously, in Ezekiel 37 where Ezekiel is told to speak to the people of God, but he's shown this amazing image in his mind of a valley of human bones scattered. And that was a poetic way of describing the nation of Israel in that chapter. And God said to him, Son of man, these bones, scattered bones, dead and buried, just poking their heads off up over the dust. These bones are the people of Israel. That was the nation. That was the state of the previous chapter. It was a time of death where God's people were as good as dead in the whole grand scheme of things. God had given this incredible plan to fill the earth with his glory and fill the earth with his people and fill the earth with the message of God. And that God would bless his people and they would be blessings to the nations. And instead, there were two tribes hanging on by the skin of their teeth in a very small pocket next to the Mediterranean. And even they were rebelling against God, their creator. But then God promises, gives a forecast and said, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle in your own land and I will settle you in your own land. 
then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. Why the cheesy pun? Born again, ultimatum. The idea of being born again was not simply, and hear me, it does include this, but it wasn't simply each individual needs a new start in life. It was actually Jesus was saying, Yarl, you all need to be born again. And he was speaking to the religious authorities of the time, saying, this nation is in a state of decay, a state of death, and it needs to be born again. Just like it was born out of Egypt, through the waters of the Red Sea, and the prophets describe that as the birth of the nation, you all need to be born again as a nation in following God. So Jesus says to the religious authorities of his time, you all need to be born again. And that also includes your own spiritual rebirth. All of us are dead in our sin and need to be brought back to life again. And Jesus speaks about this being born again into something that was so much greater than even the greatest moments that Israel had ever experienced. See, you can't think of a better, sort of more prominent character in the story of Israel as John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sort of the culmination of all of the prophets in one. He was a hero. He was the Iron Man or the Superman of his day. And yet Jesus says, you know, my people, all of them, even the least of my people, are going to be greater than John the Baptist. That's not because they're necessarily going to be braver, stronger, more willing to go out and share the message of God. It's going to be because of what God would do in this next chapter and what he was going to bring about. A new birth like no human had ever experienced. The deepest relationship with God that anyone on earth had ever felt and known was about to happen, and that's what Jesus is saying. That is what's going to be brought about. But he does give a warning, and this is why I've kept in the word ultimatum. There was a born-again ultimatum, because in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this. And this, remember, Jesus, whenever he went out and preached, he got so much backlash from people who hated what he was saying. And they were so vile to him. And people were so evil to Jesus, despite the positive good news that he was preaching about God and the truth, they turned against him. But he does say this, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, which was him, will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And remember, Jesus is telling a story He was in the old chapter of Israel's history. He was in the old chapter of God's story. After he died, rose again, and then went to heaven, that is when the new story begins. That is when the Spirit is poured out. And just think about this. When he was saying these words to people who were vilely spitting at him and hating him and planning his death, he was saying, you can say these things to me now, and you can still be forgiven. But once I've gone to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit and you hear this message again 
Because the likelihood is the people that Jesus spoke to and who turned away from him in anger would later in their lives have Christians coming nearby and sharing what Jesus did at the cross and what's happened since by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, if you reject that message, if you reject the Holy Spirit, there is no chance for you anymore. That will be it. That is the ultimatum because that is the final message. So there's an incredible amount of mercy in Jesus as he's saying, look, no matter how dead you are, no matter how lost you are, you can still be reborn by the Spirit. But if you reject the message that the Spirit is bringing, that is it. There is no more chance. The next one is a rip on Indiana Jones. This is Jesus Christ and the Temple of Life. The previous chapter of the story could have been called the era of death, but it could have also been called the chapter or the story of the missing God. Because God had always wanted to live with his people. Right at the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, he had lived with Adam and Eve. But because of their rebellion and the way that they turned against him, for their own safety, he sent them out of the garden, out of his presence. But since then, he went to extremely long lengths to try and live with his people again. First, and he took the hit on this, first, he just wandered around in the wilderness with them as a cloud of fire and smoke. Next, he moved into a tent to live with them in a tent called the tabernacle. Then they slightly upgraded this to a dry and dusty temple where he went and lived for a period of time. But because of the utter corruption in the nation and how they abused one another and the poor especially and decided that they wanted to worship other gods instead, God left the temple and went back to his residence in heaven. And God's people had been waiting since that point, probably 700, 800 years before the coming of Jesus. The temple... <laughs> which was meant to be the very house of God, had a for sale sign outside. It was empty. And even later, under Ezra, they rebuilt the temple, waited for God to return, and he didn't in any significant way. And then the temple gets destroyed or damaged, but then rebuilt again. And Herod, the kings of the time, the Herods, they tried to really glamorize the temple, make it look really nice, install central heating, uh, improve the plumbing so that God would really want to live there. And this is kind of the first comedy moment of the Pentecost story, is at the moment that God returns to his home, which he'd always promised to do, he said, I'm going to return to my temple. At that moment, he gets the address wrong. Because God comes from heaven and he was meant to land in this amazing, glorious temple. And instead, he lands in the upper room just a couple of hundred meters away. Like, it's like an Uber driver who turned up and offered us a really nice takeaway. And we're like, well, please, we'll take it. We didn't order it. This was the situation. God had promised to come and live with his people in the temple. But he got the address wrong. Or did he? And I think this is... Something for us to learn. We often think, don't we? We build these incredible buildings, and they're good, nice buildings, but we seem to think that God prefers dry, dusty, quiet buildings. 
Because we walk in with, into them with such a sense of awe and reverence as if God is especially there. But can I tell you, God prefers a lively place to live in flesh and blood where there's a beating heart. Yes, you might be able to channel and sort of hear from God in silence. That's probably a good practice. But he doesn't prefer the cathedral buildings or the church buildings that we've constructed. He prefers, in fact, he only comes to live in his people. And this is the temple of life, not a temple of death. Not dead stones that are dry and dusty and decaying. It's life, it's people, it's flesh and blood, it's us that God comes to live in and amongst. So we didn't miss the the target, we missed the point. We build these amazing structures and think God would love to live in this. When he's looking at you, he's looking at the builders, the architects, and saying, I want to live in you. That is where he comes in this moment, to live inside his people. And then that final one, found in translation. The previous episode, the previous movie, the film of Israel's history could have been called Exile and Scattered, Scattered Abroad, Lost and Scattered. Because God's people had been meant to live in one place, together for a period of time, worshipping God. But again, because of their rebellion, God had scattered them across the nations as a sign of judgment. But he'd promised, again, in Isaiah chapter 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." Do you see this is being fulfilled? What also, what's also being fulfilled is the moment back in the ancient history of Israel. There was a moment up a mountain where Moses was there with God. And God put some of the spirit that was on Moses onto 70 other people and they started to prophesy. So this spirit that had been on Moses is now given to more people and they start to prophesy like Moses. And Moses says in Numbers... He says, oh, I wish, I wish all of God's people could do this. And you see, that's what's happening at Pentecost. The very point is, as God's spirit is taken from Jesus, who's now gone up into the throne room of heaven, like Moses, God now takes the spirit of Jesus and pours that same spirit out on all flesh. And they all start to prophesy and dream dreams from the oldest to the youngest to the most important to the least important. Moses' prayer is being fulfilled at Pentecost in this moment. It's not just that, though. Do you notice they haven't just been found by God from all the nations. These people that thought God perhaps, yes, we're religious and we're devout, but is God really ever going to do anything in our lifetimes? We don't know. And then suddenly they find themselves there 
just by circumstance, because it's the Pentecost festival. They've traveled hundreds of miles thinking it's going to be a long round trip and maybe nothing significant will happen. They are there and God moves in their lives. But not only that, because this is the genius of God, he then, what happens to them? They all go back home. They all go back to the nations where they had been scattered. And what do they do straight away? They start preaching the message of God to all the nations. Because God, in his incredible planning, had arranged that they would be at one place in Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, the message of God would then flood the nations. All in one incredible act. So this new chapter... This amazing moment in Israel's history where God had fulfilled his promises. This promised spirit had now been poured out into their hearts. For these disciples, the greatest longing of their hearts had now become a reality. Their mothers and fathers, their grandparents who'd been praying for this, never saw it happen, but they did. These people, not because they were anything special, they just happened to be in that place when Jesus gathered them together and did all that he did. But they become the world changers. They become some of the most significant people in history simply because of the work of the Holy Spirit coming in their lives. They had found a source of life that went beyond what anyone could experience or imagine the very source of life himself, pouring himself out to his people for their good and for the world's blessing. They were experiencing a new chapter in their lives. And that is going to be the message next week. But it could also be now that you're living in the old chapter. You're living in the godless experience. But when the Holy Spirit moves on you, it does begin a new chapter in your life. But it isn't just about you, because actually you get caught up in the great chapter, the great story that is going on and started back here. And that is what you can be brought into in the whole story of God. But I want to ask this question, I'm conscious of time, but how real is your story? Because... At this point, we've been focused on that group of disciples who experienced, they'd been faithfully praying for 10 days. They'd been together. They'd been believing that God was going to do something mighty. And he did. He filled their mouths with new languages. And he filled their hearts with a new level of love. And he equipped them and enabled them to go out and be bolder than they'd ever been before. So there's them. And then there's the crowd and the crowd are looking at them, thinking, what on earth is going on? First of all, it is important to even the mightiest movement of God needs interpretation. Sometimes we think, well, if God just moves in us, amongst us, we don't need a preacher. We don't need anyone to say anything because it will be self-explanatory. But even Pentecost wasn't self-explanatory. It needed interpretation and explanation. But there's kind of two crowds in this one crowd. The crowd that are watching all of this going on are thinking, what on earth is going on? But some of them are thinking, ah, I can explain this away. They're drunk. 
Now, back then, they would have still been religious in some sense, but today I think that would largely be the secular audience that we often find ourselves in. We're in a secular world. Now, I'll give you an, try and use an illustration that I haven't quite formulated in my head, so it might evolve over the weeks. But um, imagine if Anne Mitchell, I haven't seen her, so I don't know if she's here, but imagine if Anne Mitchell, who wonderfully plays the, that organ, Imagine if she snuck up during this sermon and just started playing. But I had committed to only look in this direction. So everyone suddenly starts hearing this amazing music going on. And we all recognize that there's some music happening in this room. And it's flooding our ears and it's beautiful. And you all know what's going on, but I don't because I've committed to only look in this direction. So I have to start coming up with explanations of why music has started playing. And I start to zoom in on people in the crowd to try and figure out who's using their phone to play this music. And then I start perhaps broadening that out and seeing who's in the cafe and who's wired up our, our um, speaker system wrongly. And I'm coming up with all sorts of different explanations because I can hear the music but I don't want to admit that there might be something going on behind me. So I'm just trying to explain it from the room that I'm in. Now, there's two different levels of this. You might meet people, and this was me. I was a pure materialist growing up, which means that, which means that everything can be explained materially, i.e. I have created a frame about this size, and I'm looking at the world like this. And everything has to be able to be explained within this frame. If it can't, then it's an illusion, it's made up, and I have to try and explain why it's just been made up. And eventually, I have to stop believing that there's even any music going on, because I cannot figure out where it's coming from. That was me. I was trying my best to be a materialist. I will explain everything from this frame, and I've already decided that is what the world is like. And you tie yourself up in knots, I'll be honest, because I was the atheist who wore a Buddhist necklace around my neck because I thought it might bring me something. But I was still convinced that this was true. And I found this video on, uh, on Instagram. I think she's brilliantly brave and truthful, but I think she sort of demonstrates what's going on in our culture where people are saying, no, 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 the world is only like this, but I feel like I can hear something. So I'm going to broaden it a little bit but I am, this is my worldview, and this is what it sounds like. I've prayed before, even though I say I'm atheist, I've prayed before because, you know, sometimes you feel so... I'll just start again. Can we do the volume up? I've prayed before, even though I say I'm atheist, I've prayed before because, you know, sometimes you feel so lost and you feel like there's nothing else. And, you know, people can only do so much. And, you know, if there is something else... It's almost, for me, it's like a last resort, which I hate. I hate having that, and I hate being that person who I say I'm atheist, but then I like having praying as like a last resort, and I hate that. It's definitely something I want to explore into my future, but as of right now, I need to focus on my studies. I need to focus on my life. I need to focus on, you know, getting my head straight before I reach out. Now, we don't necessarily need rumbles of sympathy. I pray that she finds that truth eventually. But she is representative of many, many in the world who have decided that the world looks like this, that it is a material universe. There isn't anything supernatural. 
and yet they can hear music playing. The music of meaning, the music of significance, the music of purpose, even the music of integral human rights. Where do these things come from? The, the music that suggests, this song that suggests there is a larger story for all, all of us to be involved in, it doesn't fit within this frame. This frame says, no, 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 everything can be explained just from the natural world. There isn't any music going on. But some people have broadened that and said, okay, I'm going to admit that I can hear some music, but I'm still not going to turn around. And so they open themselves up more. And this is where the movement is, I think, in our culture, is DIY spirituality. You've heard the phrase, I'm spiritual, just not religious. This is the idea that, okay, maybe there's more. We can all hear this music, can't we? But I'm going to design something that works for me. Now, I'm terrified by that because the spiritual realm is the land in which meaning and purpose, human rights, value, dignity, love, live in that world. I'm terrified by the prospect that I could possibly design that world correctly. I can't even knit a scarf, let alone the very threads of integrity and divinity and humanity together into anything significant. So a spirituality that revolves around me that I have to thread together is terrifying. Secondly, these often or usually lead to spiritualities that you have to pay for. So many people, I went to a university to speak earlier uh, just last year, and I don't know why, but I asked them, the Christian Union, the Christian group, I asked them, how many of your friends use, um, uh, use drugs, use hallucinogenics? And genuinely, 90% of the room put their hand up and said, everyone's using these. Everyone, it's probably not everyone, but a large number of people, more and more, are, are taking drugs, using things to get high. And, and there's significance in that language. Getting above my circumstances. Transcendental stuff. The idea of being able to transition from this lower state to the upper state. It is the idea that I can tune into the music. And, but the thing is, it costs money. Taking drugs costs money. Going on yoga retreats costs money usually. Many of these new spiritualities exclude the poorest of our society. And I'm terrified of a spiritual realm that doesn't care for the poorest in our society or in the world. And then finally, I'm terrified of a spiritual realm that's less relational than I am. Now, people in this room will say I'm, I'm not the most relational person, but I can at least love a few people and be friendly and kind. But we're talking about a spiritual realm that is impersonal. But that spiritual realm is meant to make me more loving and more kind and more generous and a better human to be around. And yet it is less personal than I am. How could that possibly work? And often you end up in these DIY spiritualities. People form their own ideas and become more exclusive and less inviting and less loving and less welcoming. So I know it's a big, big part of the modern day is this DIY spirituality. And it, all, for all sorts of reasons, I get many of them. 
But the truth is, people have gone from this. They've said, right, I can explain the world from inside this box. And then they've said, I can't do that anymore because I can still hear the music. So they take their hands away and say, okay, I'm going to embrace the fact that there's some music going on. But I'm going to come up with my own explanations as to where it's coming from. And what was Jesus' message when he came to people in Israel? What is the message that Peter gets to at the end of this sermon to people who are standing there scoffing and saying, oh, you're all drunk. I can explain this. He says, turn around. The the word in the Bible is repent, but it's turn around. Turn around and look at the one who is playing the music. In this case, Anne, if she'd snuck up there, but Anne is not God. In this situation, it is Christ himself. The message of Christianity is turn around. All of these things that we love, all of these things that we're trying to explain and understand, everything that makes life worth living is found coming from the fingertips of Christ himself. He is the one playing the music. That is why he ascended into heaven. Heaven stretches over every human being. And from heaven, the music of heaven floods out into every nation and everywhere. And it's the Christian's job to explain that and say, look, it all comes from Christ. It all comes from him. He is the originator. He is the musician. He's the great architect of this entire thing. And if you could only turn around, you would experience the most wonderful, joyous life in Christ, who died for you, who rose again, and seated in heaven, and now he pours out his spirit so that you can be part of that story. I'll go to scripture. Isaiah 26, it says this. O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and your remembrance are the desire of our souls. My soul yearns for you in the night and my spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. I'm just going to read those verses again. Your name and your remembrance are the desire of my soul. It's the music that's playing. It's everything I long for. My soul yearns for you in the night and my spirit within me earnestly seeks you. Lord, we wait for you now and we open ourselves up to all that you might do amongst us from rebirth, giving us new life, filling us with the life of the spirit as we become the temple of God. And Lord, finding us, those who've been lost, being found once again, but not only found, but then sent out into the world that you've placed them in. Lord, would you do mighty things amongst us for the honor and glory of Jesus who's there playing the music, seated in heaven, the glory of heaven, the wonder of heaven, our majesty and our King. We praise him. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. 
If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.